As, as the last of the young people are grabbing their chocolate eggs, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of John in chapter 20, John 20, starting in verse 1. This morning we're going to be looking at the story of the very first Easter as told by the Apostle John in John chapter 20, and we're going to break this story down into three distinct scenes. Three scenes from that day of the first Easter, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. I've labeled each of those scenes so that we can uh, have a hook to hang on to. So scene number one, I'm calling confusion. Scene number two, I'm calling comfort. And scene three is commission. From confusion to comfort, to commission. We'll see how that unfolded on the first Easter and hopefully we'll see how that relates to our calling as disciples today. So let me pray first and then we'll look at scene number one. Lord Jesus Christ, either you are risen or you are not. If not, then according to the Bible, we of all people are to be pitied because we have pinned our hopes on something that's not real. And yet we don't believe that. We believe in our hearts that you are, in fact, risen, that death could not and did not defeat you, but you rose again from the dead. We believe that because by, your by the power of your Spirit, you have opened up our hearts to belief of the reality of the resurrection. Because of that, because you are risen, because you have sent your Spirit to be with your people, we believe that you are here now, this morning, in a different way, but in a no less real way than on that day when you stepped into the room, when the disciples were locked up in the upper room for, for fear. You, you stepped into that scene and you made yourself known. You manifested your presence to your people. And so I do pray that you would do that again here now, Again, we recognize it's a slightly different way, but it's not less real. You are here now, and I pray that you would make yourself known to us. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, scene number one, confusion, and I'm just going to read verses 1 to 10. We're in John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. Is that me? No. I'm good. Came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. 
And then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. You know the story. Jesus was crucified on Friday. It's difficult to imagine all the emotions, all the pain, the sadness, the confusion that all of his followers were feeling. It's a little bit hard for us to fully enter into that because we know what happens on Sunday. But just for a moment, imagine. Imagine that you don't know what's going to happen on Sunday. Imagine the, the feelings that you feel. Now, as practicers of the Jewish faith, they were supposed to gather for teaching and for worship and for prayer and for fellowship on Saturday, the day after the crucifixion of Jesus, which was the Sabbath. Now, have you ever thought about what that worship service was like on that Saturday after Jesus had been crucified, but before he had risen. What was it like for them to gather for worship on that day? What was that Saturday service like? What sort of prayers did they pray on that day? Which songs did they sing on that day? Who preached and what did he preach about? Was it a message of hope? Was it a message of comfort? Or was it just Pure lament crying out to the Lord. Well, here's another wrinkle to that situation as you think about that service. Most Jewish people at the time did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So it's conceivable, if you picture that service, to imagine that many people in the synagogue that day were shaking their heads and saying, well, it's a shame, but... That's what happens when people falsely claim to be the Messiah. Now, how do you think hearing those words made the followers of Jesus feel on that day? How would you have felt if you gathered together in the synagogue and you heard other people who gathered there saying, well, that's what he gets. He kind of had it coming, didn't he, for saying what he said and doing what he did. How would you have felt that day? They were obviously sad Heartbroken because they lost someone that they loved dearly, but also they were confused. Confused because this is not the way that they expected this story to end. And Jesus' crucifixion probably threw everything that they had been believing into doubt. Right? Was he the Son of God or was he not? If he was the Son of God, then why was he crucified? And if he wasn't the son of God, then who was he? And why did he say the things that he said? All those emotions, all those fears, all those doubts swirling around in their minds and in their hearts. And then Sunday. Then Sunday, the first day of the week, Mary goes to the tomb and he is not there. The tomb is empty. His body is not there. So she comes back, tells Peter and an unnamed disciple, probably John, that she was just there at the tomb and there's no body there. It's gone. 
And so those two run to the tomb, go in, find it empty. There is no body in there. They find the linen cloths and the face cloth that are lying there, but no body. And we're told that they saw that and they believed. Okay, now have you ever wondered what, what, what exactly did they believe at that moment? What does that mean, they believed? They believed what? Well, they did not believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. Not yet. The very next verse tells us, as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They didn't get it. That's not what they were believing. They didn't know that. What they believed was Mary's report that the tomb was empty. Right? Basically, Mary came to the tomb, checked it out, found it empty, came back, told the disciples, and they were like, no way. That's, that's totally me. Okay. Is it not fully plugged in? We don't know. I'll just not, I'll just be still. Think I can do it? So, the, so, so Mary, Mary came back, told the disciples, right? She's like, I was just at the tomb. He's not there. His body's not there. And that, that they did not believe. They were like, you're kidding me. No way. What? Who steals a body? And so they run to the tomb to check it out. And sure enough, they see it for themselves. They see that what Mary had said was true, and they believed. What did they believe? They believed what Mary had said. They believed that the tomb was empty because they had seen it now for themselves. And now they're feeling even more confused and more unresolved about what's happening and who, who really was this guy? Who is this guy? What is happening? You know that feeling when you discover something about someone, someone that you love, someone that you know or that you think you know, and then you get some new information about this person, and that new information makes you rethink everything you thought about this person? If you've ever experienced that, that's a very disorienting, destabilizing feeling, right? I thought I knew you, but now it seems like I don't. I was, I was recently speaking with an older gentleman, um, he's, it's actually my brother-in-law's father, I was speaking with him, and he told me a really interesting story about when he was young. He, he was raised in England, and when his father passed away, the family, after his father's passing, the family discovered that his father had been a member of the British Secret Service. No one had any idea prior to that. No one in the family, anyways, had any idea that he had been a member of the Secret Service. I mean, that's like, that's like, that's like a plot from a movie, right? And this, this man I was speaking with, my, brother, my brother-in-law's father, he was describing to me what that felt like to discover that his father was, was not who he thought he was. He, he explained how it was extremely disorienting to discover that... that all my life, I thought this person was one thing, and now I just found out that he's something else. That's maybe a small example of the types of feelings of confusion and hurt and disorientation that these followers of Jesus were feeling at this point in the story. Right? They're thinking, well, we definitely loved him, but, but who was he? <laughs> we don't know. Now, thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave his followers alone with those feelings for very long. 
right? He comes in, and into that confusion, he brings comfort, right? We don't have to wait long. We don't have to spend too long in the valley of confusion before Jesus himself arrives, bringing comfort. And that's the second scene of the story. So I invite you now to look on, starting in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to, the fa to my Father, and your Father, to my God, and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. All right, well, here we are back outside the tomb. The disciples are gone, but Mary Magdalene is there. And she's crying. She's crying heartbroken tears. And she's looking for the body. And we don't know a ton about this Mary, but we do know that previously Jesus had healed her by cleansing her of seven demons. And we know that she was there at the crucifixion. And we know that now she's here at the tomb. And we know that she's weeping. And first she speaks with two angels. But then she finds herself, herself speaking with Jesus himself although she doesn't recognize him and she thinks that he's the gardener. Now, we don't know. We're not told why she doesn't recognize him. Maybe she can't see his face or maybe there's some other reason why she doesn't recognize him. Uh, we don't know, uh, but we know that she doesn't. For whatever reason, she doesn't recognize him until there's a moment when she does and the moment she recognizes him is the moment when he speaks just one word to her when she hears that word, that one word, she immediately knows exactly who it is that she's speaking to. And that one word is her name. She hears Jesus speak her name. And she immediately goes from feeling pain and confusion, sadness, to comfort, to feeling comfort. Now the angels had called her woman. Jesus earlier had called her woman. That's not, a, that's not a rude form of address. In fact, that was a perfectly polite way to address someone, but it wasn't personal. Jesus then spoke her personal name, and immediately her eyes were open and her heart was comforted. Names. Names, names are the most important words in the world. Names. Right, of all the words in the world and all the languages in the world, names 
They're the most important, most powerful words that there are. There are not a whole lot of things that are culturally universal, right? Because different cultures are different in a lot of ways. But in every single culture, humans are given personal names by which they are identified and to which they respond. At birth, we're named, not numbered, we're named. We are not identified by the compound of chemicals that make up our physical bodies. We are not identified by our talents, by our preferences, by our earning potential. We are named. And from very early on, that name attaches to us and becomes part of our identity. Right? Whether it's the actual legal name that's on your birth certificate or maybe you get a nickname that more, you more identify with. But one way or another, there's a handle, a name by which you are identified. Right? That becomes part of you, your name. One of the basic techniques that the Nazis used during the Holocaust to dehumanize prisoners when they were in the concentration camps to tell them that they don't count, that they're not human, is to take away their names. They would remove their name, never speak it again, and instead of their name, they would give them a number and tattoo it on, your, on their arm. Right? No longer a name, now you're a number. That's a way to remove their identity, to remove the most precious thing about them, to say, you no longer count as a human being, now you're just a number. To call somebody by their name is to say, you matter. You're, you're, you're important to me. I know who you are. I have taken the time to learn who you are, and I'm going to call you by this name that identifies you. The second she hears that word, Mary, Mary, she knows it's him. It's him. He's here. He's not gone. He's here. He knows me. He loves me. He came back for me. I matter to him. And everything's going to be okay. Just a minute ago, I thought everything was ruined. But now I know everything's going to be okay. And not just okay. Everything is going to be made right. And all will be well. He's here. And he knows me, and he has called me by name, and all will be well. In that one moment, Jesus speaking her name, everything changes. Everything changes like that because of the speaking of her name. It's one of the most beautiful and touching scenes in the whole Bible, I think. Right? What must that have felt like for Mary to hear the Savior speak her personal name, Mary? No one said it like that, right? Doesn't it make you wonder, what would, it, what would it feel like for me to hear him call me by name? Does he know my name? What would that sound like? What does his voice sound like? What would that sound like to hear him speak my name? If you've ever wondered that or if you're wondering that right now, let me invite you to listen to these two precious verses from the Bible. There's a number that I could have pulled from, but I pulled two, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Verses about God speaking our names. Isaiah 43, 1. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. 
That's God speaking to his people. Fear not, I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. And you are mine. I know who you are, and you belong to me. John chapter 10 and verse 3, our Lord and Savior speaking, saying, The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. Right? He doesn't just randomly call them out. Hey, sheep, come on. He calls them all by name. He knows us. He knows our name, and he speaks it. He did that for Mary, but he does that for all of us. He calls us by name. If you are one of God's covenant children, if you are one of the sheep that belong to the good shepherd, then he has called you by name. Do you believe that? Some people find that very easy to believe, right? They, th- they, they, they think, well, of course, of course. Of course he's called me by name. Why wouldn't he? That type of presumption, that doesn't honor the fact that it is an incredible, staggering, undeserved blessing. It is pure grace that God speaks to any of us, let alone calls us by name. We don't deserve that, but he has done that. And knowing that Jesus has called you by name, that has the potential to change everything about your life. Just like when we saw with Mary, where in that moment when she heard the name, everything changed. Everything changed. That can happen to us as well. Eugene Peterson tells a touching story about what it was like for him as a boy when, uh, when he would be on the playground. Uh, and uh, this scene that many of us know from childhood on the playground when two captains are chosen and teams are being formed and the captains are choosing their teams by name. They're, they're picking their teams. And Eugene Peterson, in his book, uh, Run with the Horses, he, he talks about what a painful time that always was for him because he was always one of the last one chosen in those settings and it always made him feel embarrassed and ashamed And uh, he talks about one time, once again, he was the last one to be picked, just standing there kind of exposed and feeling awful. And, and, And he overheard the two captains arguing with each other, not arguing about who would get him, but arguing about which one would have to take him. So he realized in that moment, he says, not only, not only was I a zero, but I was actually a minus. I was a liability. Those captains made it clear that they would rather have no one than have me on their team. Right? And Eugene Peterson says he just wanted to be wanted, which is a normal way for a human to feel, right? He just wanted to be wanted. He, he, he wanted someone to pick him. He wanted to hear his name. He was just waiting to hear his name. Please, please, please say it, Eugene. Somebody, pick me. And it didn't happen. And he felt awful. And maybe you felt like that at some point in your life. Maybe you've, you know, maybe you know what it feels like to feel unwanted, to feel overlooked, to feel unappreciated, to feel uncalled. Everybody else got called, but not me. Maybe, maybe you've made a mess of things. In your life. Maybe you've once again failed to live up to your own standard. 
I recently heard one of my favorite writers, a man who's not a Christian, but he said this. I heard him say this this week, and it struck me. He said, it's very easy to know what kind of man I want to be, but it's so hard to be that man. And I thought, that's right. I know what that feels like. Don't you? I know what it feels like to be aware of my own shortcomings and my own failures. I know it better than anybody else in the world. I know what it's like to feel the weight of my own unworthiness on my own shoulders. It can be painful, confusing, depressing, disorienting. But with one word, Jesus erases all of that. He calls us by our name. That's what Eugene was waiting for on the playground. Just, just one, one of the captains to say, Eugene. We want you on our team to be called by name. And that is what Jesus does here in the garden. Now, next week is Friendship Sunday, for those of you who will be here. That is easily one of the highlights of the year. We all know that. We, can, we, we, we love to gather and worship and celebrate on Friendship Sunday. Now, I bet you know at least one of the songs we're going to sing next week, without me even telling you. I bet you know. Right? It goes like this. I have a maker. He formed my heart. Before even time began, my life was in his hands. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls. And he hears me when I call. There's so much comfort there. Right? That's what happened for Mary in the garden. That's what he does for you and for I. Next time you're feeling down or discouraged or defeated or confused, maybe it's because it's a, it's a, it's a hurt of your own making, maybe it's self-inflicted, but maybe it's not. Maybe you had nothing to do with it. Either way, when you're feeling that way, just stop and listen. Listen. Listen for the voice of the Savior in the garden. He knows you, and he has called you, by name. All right, now we move on to the third scene. We've experienced, we've thought about the confusion that they must have felt. Well, now we've experienced some of the comfort that Jesus brought. And now we receive a commission. So I invite you once again to look at God's holy word. And I'm starting in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, we're still, we're still on the first Easter. The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Maybe, maybe the biggest understatement in the Bible, right? Then the disciples were glad. When they saw the Lord, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the word of the Lord. So by this point in the story, Mary has experienced 
the peace of a personal encounter with the risen Christ, but the disciples have not yet. They're afraid, they're confused, and they're locked up in a room. We've already spoken about the fear and the disillusionment and the confusion that the disciples must be feeling at this moment. This is kind of the ultimate what now moment. If you had one of those moments in your life, maybe multiple times in your life where you're feeling like, okay, what now? What do I do now? Right? They, they had left everything to follow him. Right? They were not halfway in. Right? They were not hedging their bets. They were not like one foot in, one foot out. They had left everything to follow him. And now, as far as they can tell, he's dead. And they are on the wrong side of the law. So what should they do? Keep preaching the message? Keep spreading the message that Jesus taught? Possibly end up just like he did? Or go back to fishing and to tax collecting? What should they do? What now? Well, they're not left in that state of confusion and fear for long because Jesus steps right into it. He literally, physically meets them right where they are. And what is the first word out of his mouth? Peace. Peace be with you. Isn't that always the way with him? Wasn't that what the incarnation was all about? The God of the universe is not a God who remains distant from us with arms crossed and brow furrowed. He is a personal and compassionate God who sees our pain and joins us, drawing near to us and bringing peace. Now that was true on a macro level when Jesus took on flesh and was born of a woman, right? The world he created was good. The garden he created was a place of peace, a place of shalom. But our rebellion against his good order disturbed the peace and brought death, destruction, decay. But he entered into the chaos in order to restore the shalom to a broken world. He did that on a macro level, but he also does it on a micro level in individual lives, right? Perhaps the chaos of our life is self-inflicted. It's due to maybe poor decisions or rebellion against God's command. Or perhaps it's just simply the result of living in a fallen and broken world, right? A place where things are not the way that they're supposed to be through no fault of your own. Either way, we all know what it's like to be in the middle of the storms of life. If you're a human being on planet Earth, you know what it's like to be in the middle of the storms of life. And we all know how unstable and fearful that can feel. It's not hard to imagine the emotional turmoil that the disciples were feeling in that room. And we can all imagine the wave of relief and joy and peace that washed over them when the risen Christ walked into their midst. Peace be with you. Remember, he spoke, he, spoke that, he spoke that word peace to a storm, to an actual storm, and it obeyed, it just shut down and was still. And now he speaks that same word peace into the spiritual storm that they're feeling in that moment. Peace, peace. And it's still. <laughs> 
peace be with you. And then he says it again. It's the next phrase out of his mouth. Again, peace be with you. Now there's a way, there's a kind of an ancient way of reading scripture, of meditating on scripture, where you, you, you take a phrase, and then you read it over and over again, but each time you read it, you highlight a different word and see how it hits. Okay? Let's do it. Ready? Four words. Hear it each time, and let the word that I emphasize hit you. Okay? Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. And you, and you, and you. Peace be with you. He spoke those words into the storm, and it was calm. It is the same risen Christ who still walks right into the storms of our lives, calming our fears and bringing peace. Are you in a storm right now? Peace be with you. Not my peace. I don't have peace to give you, but the peace of Christ be with you. Are you not in a storm right now? Well, praise God for that. But it won't be long because this is a broken world and you'll see those storm clouds and in that moment may the Lord's peace be with you I hope that you have experienced that firsthand and if you haven't I want you to know this morning that it's available because he is still risen he is still with us and he is still bringing peace. That is why we use the present tense verb when we say that. My kids used to wonder, like, that sounds funny, Dad. What do you mean he is risen? Isn't it, wouldn't it be he was risen or he has risen? No, no, no. It's he is risen. He's still risen. He eternally is risen. He will always be risen. He is right here. He is with us and he is bringing peace and calm and comfort in the storm. Now, some of us want to stay right there. Some of us want this to be amen, let's close in prayer moment. Stay in the upper room. Stay with the presence and the peace of Christ. But here's the thing. Along with the comfort of Christ comes a commission from Christ. Because there's work to do in this broken world. First, we receive the peace, and then we become carriers of the peace. We become peacemakers. As the Father has sent me, he says, even so I am sending you. Well, what did the Father send him to do? Send him to bring peace. Sent him to make peace. Sent him to proclaim the kingdom, to announce to a broken and hurting world that reconciliation with God is possible through the shed blood of the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Now, Jesus did the hard work of accomplishing that on Good Friday by himself with no help from us. But now here he is on Easter speaking to his disciples and saying, all right, I have earned this. I have secured this for you, and I am giving you the gift of peace, peace in all circumstances. Now I want you to take this peace and get out there 
and be peacemakers and peace proclaimers. Spread the word of the good news of the kingdom of God. Speak it, live it, embody it. Be my body, be my witnesses here on earth until I return. Now, if you're not overwhelmed by the magnitude of that commission, you haven't understood it. That is a big, overwhelming task. Who was able to do that? None of us. None of us in our own strength. And that is why we have verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Well, how is that going to help us? Well, it's the Holy Spirit that enables the peace of Christ to reign in our hearts. That's by God's Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that empowers us to fulfill our commission to get out there and proclaim the message of peace with our words and with our lives to a broken world. And all of that is part of the message of Easter. The first Easter, the very first Easter, began with confusion and fear, but the risen Christ brought comfort and peace. And then he gave us, his disciples, and we are his disciples, he gave us a commission And he gave us the power of the Holy Spirit to fulfill that commission. That's the message of Easter. Into our confusion, the Lord brings comfort. Along with that comfort comes a commission. And along with that commission comes the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we gladly make the good confession this morning. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You died on the cross to pay for our sins, and you are risen. We believe that, and we proclaim it. I thank you for the comfort that comes from knowing that you see us, that you love us, that you know us, and that you call us by name. I thank you for the peace that comes from knowing that you have died on the cross to pay for our sins, to reconcile us to a holy God. And I thank you. It's such an honor and such a privilege, the commission that you have given us, that you have sent us into the world as peacemakers, as peace proclaimers, proclaiming the kingdom of God. We pray by your spirit that we would be faithful to that commission. In Christ's name, amen.